Welcome back to another episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Today's episode is entirely devoted to young people, which is interesting because the three of us are, in fact, not young people. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, Education Manager. I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor, and I believe the youngest of the three of us. I think that is not true. <laughs> Here at the Kansas City Symphony, we are so proud to offer a wide variety of educational concerts throughout our season. Uh, we do young people's concerts, kinder concerts, link-up concerts, family concerts, petite performances, you name it. There's just so many cool opportunities that we offer kids in the Kansas City area. And I don't know about you guys, but this is uh, some of the, I think these are some of the best programs we offer and some of the programs that I'm most proud of that we do at the Kansas City Symphony. For sure. And you know, we're sitting here and talking to each other through screens still. We were supposed to be playing kinder concerts this week. And those are some of my favorite concerts because they're for some of our youngest audiences, um, kindergarten through second grade. And we were going to have 12,000 kids this week in the Kaufman Center. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty bummed that uh, we're not getting to perform those concerts. But I know that, that kids are doing a lot, an awful lot of great learning at home and uh, have some great teachers who are working for them as well. Now, whenever I tell someone what I do for a living, I say I'm, I work for the symphony, I, I work with kids and kids programming, I really often get this response. Uh, they'll say, oh, I remember going to the symphony when I was in the fourth grade, and we took the bus downtown, and we got dressed up, and we went downtown to the theater, and we listened to the orchestra, and it was super cool. And that could be somebody in their 60s, or that could be somebody who, you know, is is in their 20s. And so many people have this experience, and not just here in Kansas City, all over the US. And it's just, it's just an awesome trip for kids to be able to go on. I think you're right. And I think that one of the coolest parts uh, for us, though, is coming to Hellsberg Hall in the Kauffman Center. We are so fortunate to have one of the really, truly state-of-the-art halls in the world, not only acoustically, but just that first time, especially if you're a little kid walking in, uh, the magnitude of the space and the beauty of the space, I think, is quite overwhelming and exciting uh, for any age, but I think especially kids. So one of the, the recent concerts that we did, we, um, we have a group of volunteers who stand in the, in the lobby and welcome the students as they come in, and we perform at the Kaufman Center for the Performing Arts. And uh, one of the volunteers recently told me that as a classroom of kids were coming up the stairs, this one little boy like got to the top of the stairs where you have this like grand revelation of this beautiful lobby. And he looked at his buddy and he was like, man, this doesn't look anything like a coffin. <laughs> it's the Kaufman Center, wow, the not Coffin the Kaufman Center. Center. It does wow. not look like a coffin. <laughs> Well, it is wood on the inside, not in the lobby though. So <laughs> not in know. the lobby. I think that's what he was talking about. It's all bright and white, and no, sir, it does not look like a coffin. You are correct. Well, one of the most amazing experiences uh, in these kinder concerts is really for the performers because we come out on stage, and uh, unlike our adult audiences, these kids are 
buzzing and they're excited to be somewhere new. They're excited to your concert. They're probably just excited to be out of school for the morning. Mm -hmm. And there is a hum that usually turns into a roar as soon as Stephanie comes out on stage and heaven forbid she invites the audience to say good morning. It is one of the most awesome and deafening things you will ever hear being on stage, listening to 15 or 1600 kids all say good morning, but it is truly incredible. It is indeed. And what I love about these programs is that not only are they fun for us to play, and Stephanie always writes amazing content for them, um, not just musical content. Uh, we're always trying to teach kids lots of things about music, of course, and about a symphony orchestra. Um, but it's amazing to me how Stephanie always finds a way to tie it into other things that kids are learning in school, science, math, history, uh, you name it. I, I think those curricular, cross-curricular tie-ins are a very special part about our programs. And anytime we can relate um, something musical to something that kids are learning in their other uh, parts of school, I think is is always helpful because when they can make those connections, they suddenly understand music in a totally different way. So I don't know if you guys have a favorite, but if you do, chime in. Uh, I was going to tell you about one of my favorite um, programs and maybe achievements in programming because my it kind of worked the reverse way for me. We It was the concert um, Uncle Sam's Symphony, and it was about we, we made the orchestra – it was a government-themed concert. So we broke the orchestra down into the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch. And when I wrote this concept year many years ago, it really, it kind of worked in reverse for me because I was like, oh, that's how the government works. It wasn't like, oh, that's how music works. I was like figuring it out in reverse. Um, but it's amazing. I mean, you know, the conductor is the executive branch and kind of leads everybody and the the vice president was the concert master because that person can also help lead and then each um, family of instruments was a different um, house of congress basically and then the audience was the judicial branch i loved it so much i get excited talking about it still that was a great concert and you just mentioned the audience as the judicial branch i think one of my favorite parts about that concert was letting the kids vote ahead of time in their classrooms and learning how to exercise the right to vote. They voted on which music from the Star Wars films they wanted to hear. We gave them three options. Uh, I think they were all from episode seven, if I remember, because uh, it had just been out that year. And we really thought we're going to get a chance to play something different at each concert. So in rehearsal, we rehearsed all three pieces from Star Wars. And I remember one was Ray's theme, one was the March of the Resistance, and every single classroom picked the scherzo for X-Wings, probably because it's fast and furious and fun. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't quite work out the way we thought it would. Would We thought we figured it would be quite torn and it would be just like our national elections and be quite close. But nope. anyway, it was still fun. It was a landslide. Do either of you have a favorite children's concert moment, whether or not it was a specific performance or just something that happened? Well, I always love something that you do in the uh, when you do the weather program and i think ah. i think i might have mentioned that program on one of other our other episodes a little bit but but i didn't talk about this so you you do this uh routine and i can't remember which piece it's to or maybe it's not always the same one but you create the sound of a rainstorm in the hall 
by inviting the kids to, I think they first start by like rubbing their hands together or something, and then they snap their fingers and it gets a little louder and it works all the way up to them, you know, doing stuff with their hands and, and stomping their feet too. And it really, from the stage, it sounds like a rainstorm. It's amazing. It does. And it's something that you can do just by yourself. I mean, you start by rubbing your hands together and then you snap for the little raindrops and then you maybe pat your legs for harder rain and then stomp your feet for like the heavy rain. And then it kind of, you can do it in reverse and it goes away. But when you have 1600 kids in one room doing all of that together, it really sounds like a huge thunderstorm. The other thing that's amazing about it and maybe slightly unnerving the first couple of times. So I, I'm told that the uh, Kaufman Center is extremely well constructed. So I'm not really concerned. But when the kids start stomping their feet, you can <laughs> feel the vibration of the building in your chair on stage. It's absolutely wild. Uh, so I love that routine. Yeah, we've certainly had a lot of momentous thunderstorms in Hellsburg Hall. As Stephanie mentioned, you can try to make these thunderstorms at home with your families right now. It might be a fun activity. I'll tell you what, my favorite program, one of my favorites that we've done educationally was, I think we just did it last year, composing a story where we showed how authors and composers make extremely similar decisions when they're creating their work. You know, you have contrasting characters in a story, and of course you have contrasting themes in a, in a typical piece of music. You have the buildup of the action to a climax. You have some surprises along the way, and any good author will have a few surprises, but not too many, because then you can't follow it. It's the same thing with music, and I, I enjoyed watching the kids react to that program, and also they, they wrote some stories of their own. We always like to have a writing element in many of these educational programs, and some of the stories they came up with were un- Believable. They were so cool. Really fun. So speaking of those activities, the symphony has put uh, up a new page on our website at kcsymphony.org where we have so many of these programs listed and there are all the activities that went along with these programs are now available. So you can read through those and listen to music along with it and you know, do that writing activity or do the branches of government activity. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff there. You can also have instrument introductions with some of our musicians and there are clips of our musicians playing. And it's uh, there's a lot of really fun stuff. Since we can't be with you in Hellsburg Hall, we're uh, trying to find new ways to engage with you even uh, on online. We definitely look forward to getting back to the hall and playing concerts for all audiences but especially for kids. You know, we serve over 30,000 students annually with these programs. We're talking about kinder concerts, link up, uh, young people's concerts, family concerts. It's amazing. It is really amazing uh, to think about how many kids come through the hall every year and uh, hear our kinder concerts, but that's only one kind of uh, children's programming that we offer. We also uh, do these wonderful uh, events we call petite performances, and I've been lucky enough to participate in several of these, and the idea is to introduce infants and toddlers uh, to the instruments of the orchestra along with their families, and all the children and families are invited to sit on the stage. They don't sit in the audience. The musicians are on stage with them. And uh, it's just a really intimate, really hands-on, uh, super fun way to get uh, kids to hear a little bit of music and interact with the musicians. You know, I love those performances so much. And it's it's amazing to see children of a wide variety of ages, but also of, you know, ability and what they're physically and cognitively able to soak up. I mean, you have infants on the stage and you have 
five-year-olds dancing around on the stage and there are a lot of different things going on. But one of the questions I get asked about a lot at those concerts is, when am I supposed to start my kid in music lessons? If I want my kid to to be a musician, like what these people do, when am I supposed to start them? Or they don't even have to want them to be a professional musician. But the, the, it's a question that I get at least twice a petite performance for sure. I don't think it's ever too early to start learning music and to start listening to music. I mean, think about um, expecting mothers that play great music for their babies while they're in the womb. I mean, m- kids react to music right away. Um, my next door neighbor, actually, I went out and played one of these porch concerts we've been doing. Uh, many of the musicians of the Kansas City Symphony have been doing. And he's just he just turned one year old. And he was out there not only laughing and clapping, but dancing to the music. And, you know, I played some familiar nursery rhyme tunes that he knew and everything else, and he liked those, but he reacted the most to the classical music that I was playing. So kids really do um, take to great music right from the very beginning. And of course, you know, starting an instrument, it depends on the instrument, I think. Strings, you can usually start pretty early, maybe the age of five or six. We even have some of the professional soloists in the world that started maybe at age three or four. Um, for winds and brass, you usually have to wait a little bit later, and that a lot of times happens, of course, in in school, el- elementary school bands and orchestras. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things that's great about string instruments is that they come in reduced sizes for small people, and uh, because physics, uh, you just can't really have that so well uh, with <laughs> wind instruments. They do make flutes with head joints that curve around to make the reach a little bit shorter, but uh, I either didn't have access to one of those as a kid, or I didn't know that they existed. So old pictures of me, you see me, uh, I had this big old bowl of platinum blonde hair, and the flute looked like it was about six feet long in my arms. <laughs> nice. I've always wished they'd make a baby tuba, and you could start out a kid at like four or five, you know, so they could play a little baby shark or a little baby Jaws, you know, something like that. <laughs> they should make Jaws. little baby tubas. Uh, don't put baby shark back in our heads. That's just don't do that. You <laughs> and know, it's I, back. I like what you said though. I'm, you know, I think exposing kids to music at, as early as you can is a great idea because it's just it's proven to be good for you know brain development, and it certainly has an influence on moods. And it, you know, there's you can't do it wrong if you're exposing your kids to music. Uh, I will say, I, I mean. My profession is a music educator. I'm an orchestral educator. Um, I have two kids. One's nine and one is five. And my five-year-old, while she has been to a ton of concerts, has not taken any music lessons. We didn't start her in Suzuki or anything like that. My son, who's nine, took piano for as long as he and I could tolerate him taking piano, which was just (laughs) about 10 months. And Nice. they both have a, a, a deep appreciation for music. There's music playing in our house all the time, but they're not in music lessons right now. And and I'm fine with that. And and that's okay. I think, you know, just exposing kids to music of what of any variety and many varieties is really important. You brought up a good point. You know, music does take a lot of work to really learn an instrument or to learn how to sing. And so it can be frustrating, both for the kid and for the parent. And you always want the kid to, of course, love it. So there are a lot of us that, and I don't know if you guys were like this, or maybe some of the other musicians in the symphony, 
if you ever got to a point where you wanted to quit, I know I was there with violin when I was probably seventh grade, sixth, seventh grade. It's that crucial time right around middle school, I think. The kids have been playing for a few years. They're pretty good at it, but they don't want to put in the time to practice and get better. And I had a couple, not only my mom, but also a couple teachers that really encouraged me to stick with it. And obviously, I'm so glad they did. But that really can be a, a tough hurdle to overcome sometimes. Mine happened at a, a much less opportune moment in my um, professional career. <laughs> mine mine happened uh, midway through my master's degree in performance. Ooh. When I when I already had a, a clarinet degree and perform an undergraduate clarinet degree, and I was halfway through my master's degree and was like, you know what, I really don't think I want to do this anymore. <laughs> That's less opportune. I finished it, and I'm very glad that I finished it, and uh, I'm so glad it's led me to some wonderful opportunities. But the, mine happened then. Well, I certainly hope it wasn't playing on my, my recital back in college that. That led you to want to quit the clarinet. <laughs> it did line up at around the same time, and Mike and I, we did go to go to Rice University together, and I did play on your junior recital. Oh boy! Well, but I, no, it was not you. I I will also say that uh, you know, as a young person, and I have to give a shout out to my mother here because I know she listens to the podcast. When I was uh, very young, I started piano first uh, when I was six years old. Very much my parents' idea because you know you don't make a lot of decisions for yourself at that age. Uh, and I, I liked making music, but you know, my, my mother would practice with me cause she was a pretty accomplished amateur pianist and we'd fight and become a whole row and, you know, and then when I started flute, she could only tell me to go practice. She couldn't actually do it with me. Uh, and, and I liked that about the flute. Uh, but <laughs> the point of the, the point of the story is, is just that, you know, you have to kind of let your kid, I think, guide you in what they're what they're good at and what they enjoy. And, you know, the fact of the matter was I, I took piano lessons all through high school and I was horrible at it and never really was able to enjoy it, even though I liked music. And the flute, I was just better at. So that I took to. Well, one thing is for sure, music, as you said, Stephanie, definitely makes you a smarter person. It makes you more well-rounded, a better problem solver. You know, they've done all sorts of studies on kids that are involved with music, especially once they get to the high school level and how much it really helps in their academic classes with uh, being creative thinkers. Um, you know, I've always compared music a lot to sports because there's a big teamwork aspect of making music in an ensemble and really learning how to sometimes be a leader and sometimes be a follower and learning how to communicate with other people. There's so many great things that you learn in an ensemble or in a music class that have nothing to do with music, but will really serve you well for the rest of your life, no matter what you go on to pursue as a career. So that leads me to a question, though, because obviously we have all been musicians for the majority of our lives. But my son, for example, will say, well, doesn't, doesn't being in a band or orchestra make you a nerd? Isn't that nerdy? My son, he he really he says that. I asked him the other day. I was like, "So, do you think what I do is is nerdy?" And he was like, "Well, no, not not what you do. Well, <laughs> what does he think I do?" <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, yeah, you you do get sometimes labeled, especially early on, as a band geek or an orc dork or wire choir person or whatever it is. The, all these terms that kids come up with. You know, kids just, especially at a younger age, I feel like are always trying to single out other kids for doing something different than them. But I'll tell you, by the time you get to high school, if you just stick with it, that's when your friends really start to appreciate what it is that makes you unique. And 
you know, in, playing an instrument or singing in a choir or acting or dancing, any of these things that you can do in the arts, if you're just willing to, to make it through those first few awkward years of really learning how to, to do something, it really pays off whether you go on and pursue it as a career or not. And I know a lot of my friends in high school really admired me for um, violin and singing and I was involved in plays and and I'm so glad that I stuck with it because I got to to really have a lot of memorable experiences making music that led me to want to pursue it for the rest of my life as okay. a passion and as a career. I have a question though. Yeah. You were admired for your singing? Yes. <laughs> Jason. I was I I actually sang more in high school than I played violin, if you can believe that. And as a matter of fact, when it came time to deciding on a uh, major, I remember my dad said, well, I'll let you major in music if you pursue violin and not voice, because anyone can sing, which is not true, of course. And there are a lot of people that play the violin, too. I'm just referencing, uh, there have been several times on our youth concerts where you, you like to belt out some opera and that it's always <laughs> interesting and the kids love it. Interesting. That's the word you would choose to use, huh? Interesting. I'm going to remember that. Thanks. <laughs> you know, when I talk to kids, I often, uh, you know, I try to help them think of being able to play music. It's like a little bit of a superpower, right? And, you know, because I meet kids too that feel embarrassed or awkward about playing music in front of people just because, especially at that age, everything is embarrassing and awkward, right? And just to be able to stand in front of somebody and, you know, play an instrument or sing or whatever it is that you do, most people actually can't do that. If they can play an instrument, they're afraid or they just can't or don't. So, Kids should feel good about it. They should. And I think one contributing factor to that, huge contributing factor to that is when you get a good music teacher who can really inspire and encourage and push you to to overcome a lot of those things. I certainly had one in particular, many, but one in particular um, who is single-handedly kind of changed the trajectory, not just of my career, but of my life in music. And that was my high school band director, uh, who, um, if any of my if any of my high school band friends are listening to this, many of them will be rolling their eyes and like, oh my gosh, she can't be serious. Because he was one, I, I went to high school in Texas. And, te- you know, Texas marching band and Texas music programs are pretty crazy and intense and, and giant. And he was um, one of those. But for some reason, our personalities just clicked. Uh, that didn't mean we necessarily liked each other, but we respected each other. And it uh, he really just encouraged and pushed me so hard to to do things that I didn't know that I could do or even wanted to do until I got there. And uh, yeah, he's Scott Mason, man. He was amazing. My uh, most inspirational teacher would probably have to be my late elementary and junior high, we called it back then, orchestra teacher. Uh, Then she was uh, Cynthia Hazlett. She's now Cynthia Snyder. But she was amazing, not only motivating me with great repertoire, but also she gave me my first conducting opportunity in eighth grade. Uh, I I made my conducting debut, conducting uh, the love theme from St. Almost Fire on the spring concert. And I was hooked immediately. So I owe it all to Mrs. Hazlett, uh, Miss Snyder, um, for the amazing job she did in encouraging me and so many other kids. She's actually retiring this year after 40 years of teaching wow. in the North Canton City School District in Ohio. So congratulations to Mrs. Hazlett. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think every 
professional musician or not even if you're a professional musician can look back and remember uh, a really, really important music teacher in their life that, that changed their path. And certainly for me, I've been really fortunate actually recently to uh, reconnect with not one, but two of my earliest uh, flute teachers. Uh, one was actually just a few weeks ago, my actual first teacher that I studied with for about oh, four or five months. And then I think she had a baby or something and had to take a leave of absence. Anyway, then I started with the person who I studied with for several years. Um, and he was just the school, you know, music teacher, like so many others. It just so happened he had an undergrad degree in music performance from New England Conservatory in, in flute. He was my first teacher and just set me on an, an incredible path. And, um, it's been so amazing to reconnect with him and to get to share my music with him as an adult and have adult conversations with each other because, you know, he remembered me from when I was, uh, you know, 10 years old or something. So that's been really, really special. So speaking of music teachers, uh, as we do on this podcast, we have uh, periodically some call-in guests. Uh, we are putting technology to its best efforts. We are able to bring you today someone who's a great friend of the symphony and a new friend of mine. She teaches music at the Center School District, which is located just south of downtown Kansas City. So welcome to Kim Jackson. Thanks so much for being with us hey, today. Hey, thanks for the invite. I'm excited to be part of this. Kim and I are buddies. Uh, when I when I first started working here at the symphony, um, instead of sending a bunch of emails out to different school districts, I made appointments to go meet with all of their um, uh, music teachers. And so at the beginning of each, uh, at the beginning of the school year, I reached out to a ton of Metro school districts. We have lots, 60 plus school districts that we reach. And I went out and I just met with as many as I could. And I, I went to these, you know, there are a lot of really big districts in the Kansas City metro area. And so I was used to, you know, going in and meeting with groups of 20 plus teachers and sitting in a room and kind of talking through stuff. And and then I, I you know, made an appointment, I think with Kim, um, who mm -hmm. was the one that set it up. And we, I went and met um, with their music department and we went in. And I forget which school it was, but I, we've went in and we sat, I think, in the library, and there was me and four of you, and that was the elementary music teachers, which was that just was, blowing my mind. <laughs> that was it. We were actually at uh, Indian Creek Elementary. That was the building that had the ceilings where you could, like, touch the ceiling yes! with the roof with your head. But, I, I mean, what I love about your school district and the music teachers that I've gotten to work with is that, you know, it's a small district. Um, it's a... a inner city district and you guys are so passionate about teaching and so supportive of your students and um, we've been lucky that you've found value in what the symphony offers for your students and and you guys are, have all committed many many years bringing your students to the symphony and I wonder um, you know why you make that choice what is it about that kind of engagement that that's drawn you to us um yeah well when i first started working in center i came from a very i grew up in a little teeny town in iowa i graduated with like 40 kids in my class so when i started teaching in the city all of these opportunities were available things that i didn't get growing up but i was like oh gosh i can give this to the kids that i'm teaching so when we started going to the symphony, we were you guys were still at the music hall 
And I took one class a year and we paid for it all out of school funds. Um, and it was just, it was something that they, especially being in an inner city school that they didn't get the chance to experience. A lot of our kids couldn't afford to go to the symphony. So giving them that opportunity to go see it was just really cool and cool for me too, because I didn't get to experience that growing up. Um, but then as the years have progressed, I've started now every kid in my building goes, we bring almost all 320 of them. Um, and it's gotten easier because of all the programs that the symphony offers as far as like bus transportation with the open doors. It's become a lot more affordable for our, our schools to go, which is really cool. You guys have mentioned um, earlier in the podcast about the programming. It ties so much into the curriculum that our kids are learning, and it just gives them another avenue to understand the things that they're learning. So uh, we, I asked these guys earlier, do you have a favorite concert that you've You've either attended yourself or you've brought your students to. I think my most favorite one um, are the, when the Paul Mesner puppets came and oh, yeah. the yes. big puppetry. That was a really long time ago, uh, but he had the huge puppets all up over the stage. It was really, I think that was my favorite. If you talk to my students, I think the ones they enjoy the most are the weather ones where they oh, do cool. all the science experiments on the stage because it just adds that extra element in that they get to visualize. They like it when they can see and hear and not just sit and listen because, you know, when you're five, symphony music does make you kind of dozy. <laughs> Kim, I'd love for you to talk just for a minute about uh, what you do in the classroom before the kids come to the concerts because uh, I think some people may not realize that in addition to producing the concerts, uh, we're in real communication with the teachers uh, to help them prepare their students for the experience. Yeah, it's um, when we come to the young people's concert and the kinder concerts, we utilize the, the program booklets that Stephanie sends out. Um, we are prepping, I prep the kids on the songs you guys are going to play as far as like we do timeline stuff and we talk about the composers and we talk about what they're going to hear and how it feels. Um, Stephanie does a great job with a lot of the lessons that are in those books. It takes us, you know, seeing the kids about once or twice a week, it takes us a good five or six weeks to prep coming to the concert, but they enjoy it greatly, all the prep stuff. Um, we listen to the songs. When we do the link-up concerts, um, which the kids get to come play the recorders on, those are also my favorite. Um, we take a whole semester where the kids are learning their recorders um, and how to play, and then again, all the movements that go along with that. Um, I actually send the program booklet Stephanie sends to us to the classroom teachers and they help me with the writing pieces. So we connect cross curricular that way. And the classroom teachers really like it because they get to have the music in their classrooms too. It's always great to have really supportive colleagues uh, with, um, in an elementary school, especially I think that are, that believe in the arts and believe in the power of music and what it can do to help kids learn everything. Um, I was interested, Kim, in, uh, is there a particular program that we haven't done yet that you think would be interesting to do? Maybe science or math or history related. Have you ever thought, oh, this is kind of cool what you're doing, but wouldn't it be neat if you did a program on, I don't know, I this aspect of science or whatever? would really like the symphony itself does the um, where they play the music along with the movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be really cool to do some kind of spin on that for the kinder concerts and the young people's concerts. Kind of like the, nice. you know, the voting thing you guys did with the Star Wars, but something where there's movie clips or I think they that visual would be really cool for the kids. You know, it's, it's awesome that you say that because um, we are scheduled 
for not next season, but the season after that <laughs> to do, um, there's a new piece that's being premiered. It's Mason Bates, Jason, and now I forget um, what the piece is called, but it's being premiered, I think, by the National Symphony. Is that right? Correct, yeah. Um, that in involves, it's kind of like a guide to the orchestra, like Peter and the Wolf style. I mean, each instrument. Uh, but there is a, um, a video component to it that kind of guides you through the whole thing that we are scheduled to do in the fall of 2021. Yeah, that's correct. Sounds yeah. right. It's yeah. going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. But that is a great idea to 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 have that visual aspect, especially since all different kids learn in different ways, and some are better visual learners than oral learners. And we do try to think of that, you know, trying to stimulate all the different parts of their learning as we do these concerts. You know, one of my favorite things is you mentioned that you have all the kids listen to the music in advance several times. And one of my favorite things is when Stephanie or I announce what we're going to be playing next and the reaction from the kids, this genuine, yes! Whoa! I, I mean, know kids, that one. that's what's so great about kids in general is they're not afraid to show their true emotions. And I, I think it makes us all feel good on stage when we're about to play something that they just can't wait to hear live. Yeah, I think that's a really cool, it makes me like watching all of my students in my little chunk of the symphony hall, when they hear something they're really excited about, they'll all flip their heads around to look at you and their eyes are huge and they're like, we know that one. It's really neat. That means that you've done your job and that we've hopefully done our jobs too. So that's always reassuring. <laughs> Kim, of course, we're all having to teach our kids now uh, through through different methods of videos and all this distance learning how have you, obviously, I'm sure you found this quite challenging, especially something like music, when you're trying to teach music. What are some ways that you have adapted to the stay-at-home uh, policies and, and trying to give your kids the best possible opportunity still? Well, I also teach not only elementary, but at the high school level, um, our high school band. And the thing that's been really great about high school band, when we're together at school, we are playing constantly. We're getting ready for the next concert and the next concert or marching band season. And not being able to be together making music, it's allowed me to step back and do more of the theory things that um, my kids have missed out on a little bit or that we only get to touch on for a very few minutes while we're in the classroom together. So I think this might the silver lining is that this might allow us to have a much more solid theory foundation moving forward so i think that part's really cool that makes me happy it makes me unhappy that we can't play together um but you know we'll get back to that point i get little video clips of the kids playing their instruments on google classroom it's kind of fun what is your um what is center's uh, device situation like like uh do kids have uh, iPads, laptops, anything like that? Do they have to use what they have at home? Does the school provide stuff? What is that like where you are? We are very fortunate in our district. Um, our, so 9 through 12 all have their own laptops. They have Dell laptops, so we can meet with the kids on team meetings, and they can record. All the laptops have the cameras and the recording capabilities. Um, 6 through 8th um, have a one-on-one -on -one device at the school, but when they did the stay-at-home order, our district rallied around and got all of those passed out. The oh. first week we were on the stay-at-home order, so everybody six through eight has Chromebooks at home, and then we were also able to go down to have fourth and fifth graders come and pick up Chromebooks, so every fourth and fifth grader has a device at home. And then the littlest ones, the kindergarten pre-K, we do pre-K in our district, pre-K through um, 
third grade, um, we do everything online with the hopes that they have something at home to use. So mm-hmm. it's easier to reach the older kids because they all have devices and it's a little trickier to get to the little ones with music and art and PE. You know, I've been hearing so many stories like this uh, in, in different contexts. And I think one of the very few good things uh, about this pandemic that we're going through is the way that it's forced music and technology to work more closely together. Um, and especially for professional musicians, you know, we're not really required by our job on a daily basis to interact with technology. So each of us has a little different facility with it. Uh, some, some worse than others, some better than others. Uh, so the fact that kids now are, are having these experiences, uh, learning music, learning anything really, uh, so, uh, closely working with technology and not being afraid of it, I think is really, really tremendous. And it's, it's actually very, very special for me to see that because, you know, we get to be old farts like me. We're often a little bit of afraid of technology. We're afraid of recording ourselves. We're afraid of recording ourselves and sharing it with our friends because it doesn't sound like it does in the concert hall. And I think it's amazing that uh, that kids are doing that. And I'm so glad that, that you're helping them do that. Yeah, I think this is only going to make us stronger when we come back together. It's going to open up different avenues that I didn't use a year ago. I mean, we'll be able to do this stuff now just in our classroom together. So I think it's, yeah, it's only going to make us stronger and it's going to make the music community a better place altogether. So speaking of, of being at home, several episodes ago, the three of us discussed our beverages of choice, right? We, I think that was the very first one we talked about what we would drink if we were able to sit down with Beethoven and have a drink. But I wonder, since we've now been at home for many weeks and unable to go anywhere, Mike and Jason, I'm Wondering if uh, any of your your drinking habits have changed or perhaps like me ramped up a bit. <laughs> Before the pandemic, I loved bourbon. Now I love bourbon. I just drink a lot of <laughs> bourbon. And I will say that I do have a uh, awesome uh, book called the One Bottle Cocktail Book, where every single recipe in there only uses one bottle of alcohol. So I've been able to create all sorts of new cocktails, which has been kind of fun. But no, not not too different. Mike? Yeah, I you know, I will say the thing for me is that, you know, when we have concerts every weekend, it sort of creates this rhythm to the week. And I usually I usually try to, you know, get stay pretty sensible early in the week. And then, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm allowed to have a little bit more of a treat. And now I I what's a weekend? I don't know what day of the week it is at any point anymore. <laughs> so I find myself just kind of allowing myself a little more than I maybe should. <laughs> I, for real, I have no idea what day of the week it is right now. So that's fine. It's all good. Uh, I, I, I've said this. I am a red wine drinker. This is what I like. I don't really discriminate when it comes to red wines. However, um, I mentioned I have two small children at home and my husband is still going to work every day as an, an essential employee. And um, so I have now taken to vodka because I feel like <laughs> vodka, you know, does does uh, more of the job that needs to be done. <laughs> <laughs> Safely and responsibly, I promise. A little bit more powerful than red wine. Kim, what is your uh, <laughs> drink of choice when you come home after a long day of working with kids or right now a long day of distance learning? I am a drink opportunist. I like to allow everyone into my world. Um, I would choose 
If I had to choose my top one, I am a gin drinker. I like lots of stuff Mm. mixed with gin. Otherwise, you know, there's a bottle of rosé in my fridge currently. There's a, you know, whatever. So once all of this is over, I know you're you're drinking at home right now, and that's where we all, <laughs> where we're, what we all have in common. But do you have a favorite place that you like to enjoy a cocktail um, that you hope to get back to soon? A lot of my favorite places are outside. If I can sit on a patio or a rooftop and enjoy, you know, sunglasses and your glass of wine or your gin on a, that's my favorite. Um, I live close to um, the downtown or south of Kansas City in our school district. So we frequent the well a lot. It's one of my favorite rooftop places to sit because you can see everything from up there. That's a good spot. Uh, They have good wings there too. I like the well. It's close to my house. Um, Kim, what would you, if you could ask Beethoven one question, as a wonderful music teacher, what would it be? Oh, man. You know, I think I would probably not ask him anything music-related because he probably gets those yeah. questions constantly. Oh, that's so um, thoughtful. I'm kind of a foodie person, so I think I would head down to the what's your favorite food and drink combination. You know, back in the 1700s, it was probably not too original. but Maybe some schnitzel or some <laughs> burst of some kind. Yeah. Burst. That's great. That's great. I love that answer. That's awesome. Well, we also like to end each episode of our podcast with some recommended listening for the week. We're all at home listening, hopefully, to a lot of great music. Um, I don't know what you guys have been listening to lately, but I would really like to recommend a recording that I've had forever, and I've revisited this week. You know, in, in October of this season, I was lucky enough to be able to make my classical subscription debut with the Kansas City Symphony. And one of the pieces on the program was Brahms Symphony Number no. 4, which is one of my all-time favorite symphonies. And it was just such an incredible week, a week I'll remember for the rest of my life, being able to make music with such amazing colleagues and, how, and to have more than one or two rehearsals, which I never get. Um, so my favorite recording of Brahms 4, which I've been listening to again this week, is with Carlos Kleiber, one of my all-time favorite conductors, and the Vienna Philharmonic. You can find it on Deutsche Grammophon. It is electric. It is an exciting recording, especially the last movement, which has a big flute solo in it, which Mike played brilliantly, I might add, in that week back in October. Mike, what are you listening to these days? Well, thank you, Jason. That was a really special week for me, and it was great to see you uh, on the podium, a good friend of mine, uh, and make music together that way. So that was really special. Um, You know, I was thinking this week, since we had... Kim here, uh, what would be something great to share with your kids if you're at home or your students if you're a teacher? And I started, you know, surfing around the YouTubes and I came across this really, well, actually a couple of really awesome uh, performances of a ballet called Polchinella uh, of Stravinsky. And uh, it's some of my favorite music to play on the concert stage, but actually it's it's a full ballet. And it, what Stravinsky did is he re-engineered the music of this uh, composer from the early 1700s by the name of Pergolesi. Uh, he wrote this incredible ballet, uh, which has all these scenes of uh, Italian street performers, basically. Uh, and they they dance to this uh, amazing music, which is uh, unlike many of, of Stravinsky's pieces. It doesn't sound particularly avant-garde in the way that, you know, Rite of Spring sounds or even Petrushka. Um, it's 
it's just the most lovely music, but it's through the lens of Stravinsky. So the score is incredible and the dance is incredible. I'll put a, a link to a, one particular video I liked uh, in the show notes, but it'd be a great thing to let your kids watch, to show students. I think it's about 45 minutes or so long and it's just... Uh, it's just really beautiful. You know, that's funny. I had uh, I had Kim in mind also, but also in my recommendation, I was thinking of Mike because we've recently had a discussion about your love of Peter and the Wolf. True. So I am recommending a recording of Peter and the Wolf. It's my favorite um, narration. It's with Patrick Stewart. And it's the one I always go to when we're going to be performing it. And I want to make sure that I... I get the the my favorite narration. Um, so, Mike, we all know how much you love this piece. I do, and so I hope I hope that you study it up. And uh, Kim, I hope that you share share this with your students because uh, it's it's one of my favorites. Kim, anything you're listening to that you want to uh, to share with us, or um, in my favorite, most favorite, and I hope the symphony does this again someday is Anton Dvorak's New World Symphony. I did my. Um, college theory final tore that song apart is my favorite um and then one we listen to in my house all the time because it's something i teach with on a regular basis is edvard grieg's um in the hall of the mountain king it lends itself so awesomely to um elementary education because we can do movement things and play along things so um my seven-year-old likes to put that on alexa all the time and tiptoe around the house to it can i tell a really fast hall of the mountain king story please because i like that piece too and we play it we play it often, you know, particularly on, on kids' concerts. So I don't want to embarrass my colleague, but I'm going to embarrass my colleague. And you have to understand the context of this. We each make fun of each other constantly. So uh, so in at the end of in the Hall of the Mountain King, the, the woodwinds all play... And the uh, the fingerings of the second flute part in that particular uh, spot, I don't remember exactly what the pitches are, but it's super awkward. It's actually more awkward than the than the first flute part and it's really really fast and so so we always joke that like you know she occasionally messes it up and i said well we can switch parts if you want so occasionally in those concerts we've switched parts just in that one little spot so that <laughs> i have the opportunity to humiliate myself <laughs> awesome that's section love right there that's nice <laughs> it's yeah that's what we do well, I want to thank our guest again, Kim Jackson, who uh, is so fantastic to take time out of her busy teaching to uh, to talk with us today, because I know how incredibly busy teachers actually are right now, producing all of this wonderful material for their kids and uh, learning to uh, teach and work with students in a whole new way. So really, thank you again, Kim, for being here. And it's uh, so great for me to meet you for the first time. On our next episode, what would our favorite movies be like without music? I shudder to think. Join us next week as we explore the world of film scores and talk about some of our favorite moments in cinematic music. We'll take a look at how our Film Plus Live orchestra concerts come together, and Jason will tell you what all those flashes and lines and weird symbols mean on his screen to help coordinate a live orchestra with movie. Next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. 